and welcome to the Development Dilemma podcast, a place for the conversations we've been avoiding between expats and locals in the development space. We're here from both sides of the table to tackle development dilemmas and chart how we can do it better. Join me as we start the conversation. Welcome back to the podcast and Happy New Year. A small note that for 2022, I'm really excited to continue to explore these topics. And this will be in the form of these podcasts. But also, for those of you in Nairobi, in-person panel events. And at both these events I tested last year, you guys brought a fantastic amount of energy and engagement to the room. So I look forward to meeting some of you there. Last year, I had many people reach out to share their interest in the podcast. And for the coming year, I'm looking to build on this excitement and find someone who can spend some time a week working with me directly to grow our social media presence and this community of conversations. So if this is of interest to you, share your interest in a message on Twitter, Instagram, or by email by the end of January. This episode features Dr. Wangui Kimari. Wangui wears many hats, and I know her best for her role as a key part of establishing and supporting the Mathari Social Justice Center, referred to here as MSJC, in Nairobi. And MSJC began in 2014 by young members of the community to promote social justice in an area of Nairobi where residents face many daily forms of violence, from forced evictions, to police abuse, to extrajudicial killings. They happen far too often, and having attended several of their meetings, these stories and and these realities become very vivid. And so MSGC is one of many social justice centers across Nairobi that are working to address some of these conflicts in informal settlements. And as a registered community-based organization, they are involved in a number of different initiatives. Most notably, they worked on documenting these extrajudicial killings in public reports that have shaped the discussion and, and brought to light a lot of these issues. But also recently, they curated a fantastic photo exhibit and pretty harrowing book uh, on some of the stories from the Mothers of Victims and Survivors Network that MSJC has been part of. So this is a really powerful community-based organization that makes really hard-fought change in their community. And I'll include a link uh, to their website, which I, I recommend checking out. And so alongside this, Wengui has played a really core role in their work. And whilst all other MSJC members live in Mathare, she comes from the more leafy suburbs of Nairobi and brings a different perspective and her research skills and leadership to MSJC and the team there. In this discussion, we hear her perspective on the evolution of the NGO space in Kenya the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, along this, and how MSJC works to navigate such an environment. Thank you very much, Mungui, for joining me today on the Development podcast. And I'd love to start with a question I ask all my guests, uh, and this is just to get a sense of what is a message that you think is underappreciated in the development space and if people take one thing away from today's episode mm. what might that message be i think about this and partially it's it's kind of informed by me just trying to figure out life in madare which i'll talk about shortly for the last 14 years and what i always tell people is commit to something it doesn't matter if you have one shilling five million shilling zero shilling just go and show up and Part of showing up is is building the relationships that you need to allow for a communing or a sharing that builds something, really. A lot of development does not commit to 
relationships, does not commit long-term time. Yeah, doesn't commit to people and all the craziness that they come in and all the shapes that they come in. Maybe just in that longer term, for you, right, is it is it two, three years? Is it at least five? What does it look like? You know, I think I would say since in 14 years, maybe every Saturday, maybe for eight years I've been in Madari. But that doesn't mean... Uh, that you need to be there all the time, but that you need to f- try and forge relationships that if you're interested in contributing to co-shaping something, then you need to develop relationships that allow you to commit really your time. Sometimes time is not there for people, but just thoughts and sacrifice. Really, development mm-hmm. is a sacrifice. Trying to create something is a sacrifice. But I don't find that development makes those sacrifices because mm. it's just become like a transaction. You need a specific kind of recipient who needs to say a specific kind of things. You write the specific outcomes and outputs. It shouldn't be that kind of transaction. It's a relationship, I guess, instead. Mm-hmm. Right? And, and we all know from our own lives, relationships take time and take a, a huge Have investment. Pizza. Yeah. When you're coming to this background, you mentioned Mathari, but I'd love to, to get a bit of kind of what that experience you've had and your involvement in the in the badly termed development space. I can talk about that a bit. I think Kenya really heard about NGOs because there's a generation that grew up before NGOs. And then there's a generation, I think, in the 90s that have NGO lexicon, especially if you live in Kibira or Madare, or NGO lexicon as part of the vernacular, whether it's capacity building or gender sensitive or gender mainstreaming. And I'm not saying that's bad, but you can see how it really has shaped lives in really, even in intimate ways. But for me, I grew up for a long time. I think I didn't know what an NGO was until my mom started volunteering for one, maybe in the early 2000s or late 90s. And she was saying, I'm there for the women's movement. She was there for the women's movement, but this NGO is not there for the women's movement. And I think just hearing some of the stories that she told, it really was seemed very shaped by outside. There was a lot of performativity for the West in that you need to perform to be these oppressed African women. But then you're also, they have, there has to be also singular heroes. So they're particular heroes all the time who are fostered and neoliberalism loves individual mm. people, right? It loves to foster Striving the individual houses. hero. And so you could see that. Granted, I mean, it's easy to talk about the shitty things for sure. And I understand that. But for the most part, if I think of my mom's involvement, and she can talk about this in a bittersweet way, I don't think she felt, despite her commitment as a volunteer, that a lot happened. It just served to, unfortunately, and I think this was at the beginning of NGO dominance in Kenya, late 90s, it served to uplift particular women. So it uplifted them to, and already privileged women, right? Who would be the interlocutors for African women instead of there being more grassroots conversations. So that's for sure, uh, maybe a bit cynical, but if I think of that particular NGO, but also uh, Pole Pole or Slowly by Slowly working in Madari and seeing, for example, and I just remember this example today, an NGO that came to teach African women how to be clean and take care of their kids. And the person they sent was a young white girl, no kids. First time in Kenya. I was like, 
if this NGO thinks that this enterprise is legitimate, that they've sent this young white girl here to teach mothers, already mothers, to take care of the kids and be clean? Oh, damn, that's a, that's a hot mess. And that she thought it was legitimate and that the African staff thought it was legitimate. And for sure, maybe the women were just there because they're like, okay, if I pretend that I don't know how to clean my kid, then I get this out of this process. But for me, obviously development is many things and it's become a casual phrase for many things. But when I think about that example, it just, it makes me sick. I learned from all of this. I also met many great people in the so-called development space who are really committed, but ultimately seeing no long-term commitment to people or to structures or to hearing what people have to say because an agenda is already created in a boardroom somewhere, right? And so this example you bring, is this one that you see echoes of today in in different places? Is it actually representative of quite a significant approach? I think so. And partially, I don't see it because I don't no longer work in spaces where that is sanctioned. I can say that there's, whether in the West or here, slightly more pushback against those kind of, those programs. But they're there. In some sense, in my head, I kind of divide development into a few sections. So there's that kind of development, which is just basically replacing missionaries. And actually, Firoz Manji writes about this in a paper called The Missionary Position, just how development practitioners replace missionaries. So that example I gave for me is just a kind of development. And then there's now even development where, I think it's called, is it the... FCDO? FCDO. And so they'll say, we're giving you money, but we're going to build a mall. That's not development, right? Development should not be a way for the UK to render profits from African territory. And I see more and more that kind of practice where Garden City Mall is built, FCDO money, or building roads. And then then this kind of general development. So like, I will give you money to protect human rights defenders. Or the best thing, I think all African countries get money for elections because white people think like elections in Africa are always shit. (laughs) <laughs> so there's always money for elections and so I'm sure I'm sure all the NGOs in Kenya are like yes 2022 are gonna be cashing in I joke but also knowing that in places like for example in 2007 2008 was a hotspot for a lot of violence some of the people we work with with our disability campaign had limbs cut off so I'm not joking about those realities. So I think I've given you three broad categories. There's the missionary one, absolutely, completely transparent one that it's all about profits, which in some ways I admire because it's so transparent. And then there's like the general one of building on crises or gaps or neoliberal human rights discourses that don't think about collectivities and people working together. Ultimately, none of the three think about changing the structures that oppress people. Okay, and when we talk about kind of, as you mentioned, the 1990s has been the point where a lot of these arose in Kenya. So I'm curious, how have you seen that space chart out to be today, what is a behemoth, a very core part of the economy here? And you know, to be honest, I would not say that I'm an NGO analyst or an observer, but you can see that I think there are particular watershed moments that people point to. So 1980s, early structural adjustment, 
everyone is screwed from Mexico to uh, Nairobi. You've signed away rights to, you fired. In Kenya, there was a lot of firing of civil servants, so much less money put in universities. Water was then privatized. So all of these things, you know. And just come on to that. These are the kind of structural adjustment programs from the IMF yes. and the World Bank and the loans that were given at the yes. time. And the conditions. conditions, yeah. Okay. And the enacting of these conditions on the government. And the enacting. And that's when I think from my understanding, obviously I was really quite small then, but the civil service was quite large. There was a lot more money put in education. Uh, there were better prices for farmers. There was in school, people used to get milk and it was free. Now you in schools, ostensibly free primary schools will charge you. And water was not privatized. Obviously, there's always the figure of the African politician who's conjured as like the worst dictator ever. That holds. I'm not going to lie. That holds for some time. But so in order for Moy to get support to try and fill in the gaps that have arisen because of structural adjustment, then there's a focus on no. So to do this, you have to have good governance. And this is a very crude chronology, by the way. Again, there's also pressure local. In Kenya, there's always local pressure, so I'm not taking away from that. But this ongoing activism coincides with this outside pressure to have multi-party elections and also Kenya to not be a one-party state again. It's country-to-country aid, but then people are like, yo, we can't have country-to-country aid anymore because we don't want the government to get that money because it's just chopping all this British taxpayer money which is really reparations. Whereas there were already solidarity organizations. Solidarity organizations that helped the ANC in South Africa, that helped Amilcar Cabral in Guinea-Bissau. They were always there, but now there's this formation that's a non-governmental organization. I think maybe that distinction was then emphasized during this period, which I would hazard to say is like the early 90s, mid 90s. So explicitly non-governmental, then to fill in this gap to receive money for aid. And the first people to jump on that train, whether you had <laughs> good intentions or not, they made a lot of money. Who are these people? These they are... were, of course, the people who were able to fill that gap because they had the language of human rights. So people who had education, middle-class people, of course. But Kenyans. Yeah, Kenyans. Kenyans, but also not Kenyans. But the Kenyans who would fit into that equation made a lot of money, but also outside consultants always chopping money. Even if they don't know the context, they'll say, yes, I know Syria, so that means I know Central African Republic. <laughs> so hence that space emerges in some ways. I think this is really powerful because for a lot of us in the space, and, and we're coming in young and inexperienced, whole question as to why we are allowed to come in, <laughs> but we do. And it means that we come into a space where we've always seen NGOs yes. and international NGOs. And those are just established fabric of how the stuff works, mm-hmm. how, how aid is supposed to happen or reparations is mm-hmm. supposed to happen. And that wasn't the case. And I think it's important to highlight there was this big transition, as you say, in the 90s, where essentially what it was is is places like the US or the UK saying, we are only going to find us NGOs mm-hmm. and ones we trust. Mm-hmm. And, and namely, those became ones led by British or, or Americans who got to flood in, sure. take a lot oh, of these sure. positions. And, and that was the creation of an NGO space. Of course. And also Kenyans who could fit in that equation. The ones who are seen as, okay, 
you have the education and the language to be our interlocutor and to kind of embody the liberal human rights discourse that we need Africans to embrace. Granted, those human rights also align with things that Africans want. You know what I mean? I guess uh, what we're not arguing about is that the kind of values people were trying to achieve with these things, mm -hmm. that those were bad. Um, yes. There were cases where they were, but the yeah. contention is the approach. And certainly also not only the approach of which, which is the right priority, but also the ways in which those outside agendas displace local ones. Yeah. And we're then, okay, well, what we really care about are human rights issues. And, and that's what we think is your biggest problem. Um, yeah. Even though, of course, people would care about their human rights. For sure. And I just want to make that distinction because sometimes that argument is used to delegitimize LGBTQR rights. So it's used to say, this is a white people agenda. That's why all NGOs must burn. That's not what I'm saying, for sure. They're obviously gay Africans and gay Kenyans. So that's, I'm not saying overwhelmingly that those discourses are foreign or the values are foreign. But I mean, on that point, I think it'd be fair to say, let's not forget the homophobia that exists across the continent. Of course. Came from the colonial <laughs> empire and those views. Yeah. So those itself are also externally imposed and... and yeah. Well, we won't go into how much Christianity has a role there, but it's significant. Yeah. And, and then it goes on. And then there's another moment where people are like, yeah, these NGOs are really chopping money. Now, in, what, in what time period is this now? So I would say actually really quite recent. So there's also those kinds of contradictions wherein they are outfits that are not going to change the structures. But there are also outfits which have contained people who are really committed to community, want to make change and need to make an income, you know? That tier of people. There's also the tier of people who don't care. They want to write a report for New York. They want it glossy. It will go into the archives of UN, whatever. And there's also that tier of people which unfortunately seems to carry the be the engine for NGOs, you know? Yeah, the the paradox of NGOs is, is their future relies on the problem they're trying to solve not to be solved. Mm -hmm. And there was actually a great article in, in the Stanford Social Innovation Review talking about NGOs and trying to work themselves out of a job. And it's something which is phrased often, and yet you don't see the structural approach that would be required. It's a very much patch the system create nice reports. So I'd love to then go to a specific example where that focus on structural solving isn't there and where have you pushed perhaps with Mathara Social Justice Center otherwise? I think the disjuncture may be what structures you agree upon are there. Because for us at MSJC, police violence is caused by racist, capitalist, colonial system. But maybe for an NGO, there's Police violence is caused by a poor police culture. You know, sometimes you also don't agree on the structures and maybe they're they are grappling with that and we're like, we're grappling with shitty police culture, but we look at the higher levels and that's also what we are trying to deal with. And so maybe sometimes there's a different recognition of the structures. People are like, no, you're dealing with rogue policemen. No, you're not. You're dealing with police who are holding up the borders in the ways that they know how between rich and poor. That's why no one cares. 
because you can say that you're killing a future thief or a suspect or a thug and no one cares because they think that you're doing your job because you need to uphold these boards. You need to police these neighborhoods to make sure that poor people don't come out and come to Spring Valley and take your stuff. I just as one crude example. And let's trace that back, I guess, then. So with this divide, with this mentality of, of policing to be based on, you know, really just keeping the, the poor out of the rich areas for the sake of the rich. Where does that stem from and where do you see that having been created? You know, I mean, colonialism is all about borders, right? But also in Kenya, people don't recognize that before there was even a Kenya and a Nairobi, there was a police force because... Kenya was a protectorate. It was the Imperial British East African Company. It was part of a company. And that company, as soon as it landed in Mombasa, it was like, yeah, we need the popo, we need cops to protect, not only us, because obviously we're extracting stuff, but the further extraction that we're going to do in other places. So before there was even Nairobi, before there was even Kenya, the Imperial British East African Company had a police force. And so the origins of the policing didn't originate from a community-based sense of protection or justice that originated from a colonial... I think this is really powerful as, as a thing to highlight because I remember being shocked that I worked at a DFID UK aid-funded organisation when I arrived. And there was never an explicit mention of, oh, hang on, the reason we are here is because of colonialism. Mm. And that is something which will have continued in today. And, and mm. me as... A British person here. I am here because I, you know, mm. I'm part of a, an, a history and an empire that For continues sure. to live in. And, and that was never an explicit part of the discussion. How do we trace that origin of policing uh, and se- private security guards for theft? Something that is manifest today. You see that quite clearly. For sure, and not just in Kenya. It's replicated everywhere. You know, you need to protect the property of more prosperous people. You need to enact laws that were not made in favor of the poor people. So that's why there's a police. The most forceful articulation of the state, they're present. And for many people in Madari, that's the face of the state. Police, you don't see water, you don't have a tap, don't have a house. Your education is miseducation. So the face of the state that you see every day is the police extorting you, harassing you, killing you. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, that's quite a clear way in which NGOs who are led or strongly funded with a strong agenda from the outside might not be pointing at the right structural issue. Not at all. And I'm not saying that there's there not moment where there's, of course, women are oppressed because of patriarchy, but patriarchy also intersects in many ways with capitalism which just extracts their labor so maybe there may be an agreement that patriarchy is awful but there's rarely any recognition that you need cheap labor for capitalism and women are cheap labor black people are cheap labor africans are cheap labor and that's where that's where there's a big fork in the road an immediate fork in the road in how people think and so in your experiences with MSJC, I wonder, as an organization that has sought funding, has got funding from external funders, sure. how have you faced up against that impression or, or that agenda? 
And I really appreciate that question because for us, honestly, it's important for me to highlight that some agendas in Kenya are more easily seen as a violation elsewhere. So killing the poor people here, whereas the government does not care, many middle class people do not care, or maybe are, are scared to care. Human rights defenders in the EU can say this is wrong. And there are points at which this, your ally is the most unexpected person. Like the EU would be like, killings of poor people is wrong. Or you have that one person, not even the EU, who will want to make that change. And I shouldn't say the EU because the EU is letting so many Africans drown in the Mediterranean. So that one person in the EU. And that's the most unexpected ally. And strangely, that's, I think that's been our life in many ways that you have all of these unexpected allies. But yes, we have received funding as part of consortiums from the EU, Monopolis killings, the uh, UN Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial arbitrary and summary executions came to Madare, it's been there. Stephen Jackson, the resident coordinator of the UN has also been in the office. And what we are grateful for is that everyone knows our face. Like MSJC, we are not pretending that we don't think what we think. But if our interests align here, let's do it to save young people. And our pressure against the state can also be, a, if it's accompanied by the UN Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial and summary killings, let's get that chick on board. I'm about that. And I really appreciate that. And so there, there are these contradictions as well in that we have unexpected allies in places you wouldn't imagine. And I guess in those instances, they have a power that, that you guys don't have. <laughs> completely. Honestly, completely. And it's good. It needs to be answerable because it's funded police reforms for so long. Like IPOA, the Independent Policing Oversight Authority. Out of 18,000 cases, of only 12 cases. So 18,000 since 2012, in 10 years, they've only concluded 12. Actually, they're also answerable because they've been funding this police force and IPOA for so long. And so that power for sure, we don't have that power. I mean, if you've been to our space, but we have the determination to create it and to forge allies that will enact more power and above all, to support a community where everyone becomes an activist for the community and for themselves. Hmm. Having had a chance to visit last week to Mathari and the team there was, was viscerally evident. And I think that was really inspiring and, and it shows the unsurprisingly the only deep commitment comes from those who live it but there's a crucial role and you're someone who doesn't live it but no. is deeply committed to and has built those relationships can provide that power and that's what you've done there just trying you know it's also learning for sure i'm not from madare at all i don't sleep like someone from madare i don't eat the same food i don't have the same fears like i can leave my house at nine and I have a street light and no one will shoot me or my child. I do feel that I have also been shaped a lot. And I don't say this in a cliche way, like, because <laughs> there's like a million Hollywood movies about people going to working poor working class communities and being like, I'm changed. I'm not talking like that. I'm saying that I continue learning through the relationships I have from people I consider sisters and family members to see more clearly the really sinister ways that um, the kind of dynamics we're talking about are articulated. And on that, 
don't know if you, what are the ways you've seen them as the recipients of a lot of NGO work or NGO aid. How have you seen their, them portrayed? And you know, I need to say that people, there's a lot of pushback on how people are portrayed, but I think there's a lot of organizations uninterested in real conversations that will come and be like, I gave all of these slum women a camera and these are the pictures they took and I've made this glossy book and now they have freedom of self-expression forever. I think there's less of that compared to when I got there 14 years ago. But I think some of the work, and I hope I'm answering your question of MHJC, is to challenge these narratives. Because also NGOs don't want, they want to work with specific recipients and specific interlocutors. They don't want to work with young people who maybe have been to jail. They don't want to work with young people who will be like, we don't want your poverty pornography. They want to work with specific subjects and so they get specific outcomes. And I'm not saying those subjects are fixed, but it will benefit an NGO if they work, if they work with 13 year olds who don't have pads. Mm. But they should get sanitary pads. But you need to think about why those 13 year olds don't have sanitary pads, don't have a toilet, don't have water to use the toilet. Those are the broader issues you need to be thinking about. And from your experience, what I'm hearing is you see the NGOs in that space choose to target, let's provide them pads and, and count how many? Singular issue. Okay. We just want to think about pads forever. Yo, know, people need pads for sure. But you need to think about why this 13-year-old doesn't have pads, why they cost so much in the store, why they don't have a toilet to co- use those pads, why they don't have water to wash themselves. That's part of a reality that's not just confined to the material pad, you know? Yeah. So I guess it's looking at the complexity of, yeah. a, not this context, of any context, because we're yeah. humans. <laughs> and again, it's not a broad sweep, but for sure development is, even in its name, I, I identify as people on a like stage of development, right? A very Darwinian approach, of which Africans usually feature on the bottom. So, it's a big issue. And we've spoken a lot about NGOs, but I think other actors that are part of this kind of entourage oh, yeah. of aid might include so many. Of, yeah, journalists and academics. academics. How have you seen their interactions with from what you've seen in Mathari? Or- I mean, it's often very extractive. Journalists work in like one minute time frames. They're like, my editor's on my ass. I need a statistic right now about how many people have been killed. But they don't care about the names, the people, the mothers. The, that's what they want. They want the statistics. And we fight against that a lot. Or these days we say, if you're going to visit Mama Alex, you need to take Mama Alex shopping because you're re- traumatizing her narrating her story about how her son was killed. You're taking her away from her business, making chips, some of which you ate. So if you're going to go there, take that woman some sugar and respect her time. Otherwise, I'm not helping you. Honestly, I actually strangely get a lot of phone calls from different people. At the same time, it's good for her story to be out there so that it it sheds light on all of these grave violations. But we need to make sure that how they get there is not at the cost of Mama Alex anymore. Academics are the worst. <laughs> There's a lot of parachute researching. So someone will pay 
someone must have really peanuts to do research which they'll use to get a job in a university and have no relationships. And for me, I'm more sensitive to that because I'm also an academic. I need to work through, oh God, I can't admit, I believe I admitted it, but I need to also be attentive to these structures and hierarchies and how people who I would not have any idea about many things in Madari if it was not for them. And so I'm grateful for that. And it's obviously sometimes you don't know, how does one reciprocate? This is a, another thing. You're not always clear or what is enough or not enough. And I, I understand those dynamics and things we need to grapple with, but academics are mostly the worst. Hmm. Really, they pay people peanuts. I don't care if you have no funding in your university in the West, don't do the research if you're not going to pay people well. Hmm. Or do it in your tiny borough, wherever you are. Don't come to Madare and do it. I think it's the approach itself, if it mimics this kind of, I guess, extractive approach. Yeah. That's part of the problem. For sure. But, you know, can I tell you, as much as I... I spent most of this time throwing mud. I am actually quite optimistic. I think one day I see so many young people struggling for their lives and I feel one day uh, things are going to be, is the word righted? I don't sleep anymore because I have a kid, but like things are going to be made right. I actually have a lot of hope. I mean, these structures are very shitty and we've really reified middle class people into more structures of power, not only in the government, but in NGOs and INGOs, which are really full of already privileged people. But I have a lot of faith. And sometimes that faith comes from above all and primarily from seeing young people really articulating these dynamics when they have so much to lose. But also what gives me hope is unexpected alliances. Like that the work of grassroots people it's read in the EU because, for example, I think I told you, because these social justice centers were part of doing the universal peer review of Kenya's human rights. It's never happened before, and that's happening because young people are pushing. Hmm. It wasn't just confined to the realm of NGOs with big offices in Karen. To be honest, I'm actually someone who's benefited greatly from NGOs when I accept that work, you know? They always need a, like... Native informant? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm actually graduated from a native informant, but I start, did start up being a native informant. Do you just need to call a spade a spade and not a big spoon? Now what, that I have... What does it mean to be a native informant <laughs> for you? Uhuru's dad, who is... Uhuru has the wrong name because he's definitely not freedom, but Uhuru's dad... And Uhuru being the president of Kenya. Ah, uh, yeah. And then his dad, who was the first president, was actually kind of an anthropologist. Hmm. And he actually graduated from LSE in anthropology. But his supervisor was called Malinowski. And Malinowski, like other anthropologists of the time, used to be like, yes, my native informant told me this. And so that's where the phrase comes from. You always had this native informant. And so we're always pushing against being the native informant. When it comes to, let's say, an NGO, what would you say they should, they should take away to, to rethink or work on? I think ultimately people need to quest- ask themselves hard questions. So I don't know what NGO you're in, don't know what you're doing, but you yourself ask yourself hard questions and then think about the the processes you put in place and the programs. So are your processes very like bureaucratic, 
are your programs even useful? First of all, are they useful? Are they just like on a two-year cycle? And I think beyond thinking about programs and processes, I think people just need to ask themselves hard questions. I'm not saying we're perfect. MSJC is far from perfect. I'm far from perfect, but I think... But what are those hard questions? And the hard questions is, what are you doing? Are you targeting structures? Who are you doing this for? How have you committed? Are you committed to these people? Who are your recipients? Who are your interlocutors? In 30 years of NGOs, has Kibera changed? Those are hard questions, you know? Where is the role of speaking to someone else, right? Speaking to someone like you. How can they respectfully create a conversation for that space? And what's particularly hard is, of course, for the person on the side to feel that actually is a space they can be honest yeah. with experience. You know, MSJC, what we do create space for is people learning by doing and thinking by doing. People accept me knowing that I don't know half of the reality that there is in Madare, but that I try and show commitment to try and learn and shape and grow relationships. I think that it goes a long way. If you're committed to asking those questions and changing those structures, show up. As you grow relationships, you learn. And don't deliberate so much. I think that's part of the issue. Just go. With the intention to show up in a long-term way as much as you can. Obviously, life happens. People have kids, lives move. But just show up and be honest in a space that you honor. It's that bias towards action, because if there's one thing like myself and many others in these NGOs will have a tendency towards will be a kind of intellectualizing and just forever thinking, but in that way, maybe protecting ourselves from from asking the hard questions or seeing the hard reality of it. And so I think a bias to actually go there, actually speak to people and, and over time and build those relationships is is a very powerful thing and one that's easy to ignore because it is hard (laughs) and it requires sacrifice and commitment as you said but if that is what you actually care about if that's what you actually are here to do then you make that part of your approach part of your work be that giving up some time on an evening to go somewhere and i say that generously really just make that step I'd love to close with, as someone who's very much a part of Mathara Social Justice Centre and a part of what is, I think, an incredible initiative and and a really strong grassroots movement, if there's an NGO, if there are individuals from different backgrounds, but who want to contribute in the meaningful ways we've spoken about, how would you want them to approach MSJC or yourself? And what should they be looking for? You know, it's an interesting question because I really... So I'll say two things. First, I think maybe coming to the space because it's really open. We're not that great with emails because we don't really have staff to deal with emails. But really, I think coming to the space is a good step. And we have weekly meetings on Saturday at 2 p.m., which are open to everyone to welcome in terms of Sometimes we get emails where people want like a life of information. People will send you like a one page email and you're like, how, I don't have time to respond to this. Do you know what I mean? 
because we really like many social justice organizations your first work is responding to to different things shooting or safety issue you don't have time or often the internet to respond to very long questions and when you come i know there's a lot of organizations where people feel like you have to be super apologetic just show up and be yourself and if you're white it's not your fault that you're white just come or if you're middle class just as long as you are reflective of what privilege that gives you and you want to do work i think i was telling you we we have so many ways that people can help that you don't think about like taking minutes in a meeting she'll help us because not many people have a computer typing is not easy we usually write things by hand first so if you have a time come and help us take minutes or we did a water report where we did gps mapping of water points which none of us had the expertise to do but we had a lovely from norway who helped us do that i need to give a shout out to ed ram who took our pictures for our exhibition for free and so there's so many ways that everyone has talent and expertise and if you can think about a way to merge that with some of the campaigns we have karibu sana you're very welcome People sometimes think, I'm just going to throw money at you. No, actually, we are grateful. Don't get me wrong. But what we're here for is building relationships to ch- challenge structures. It's better to have next to you a body on the street than a checkbook sometimes, you know. Someone who you can call and say, Arnav, you need to come with me to go to the police station. I need to talk to that guy. You know, that's, that goes a long way. But just all of you are talented, have talents, have interests, have expertise. Just come and see the ways that we can keep people alive, really. A lot of our work is trying to keep people alive. So, karibu. Well, thank you very much, Wengui, and uh, for sharing your experiences. Your thoughts are very honest thoughts on this topic. So. Okay. So, no problem. Wonderful. Mbona inashinda chini na mawe siogopi hell na kwa fika heaven Thanks for listening. I've been lucky enough to get to know MSJC and they really are a fantastic organization. So if you're interested in building relationships and making a real contribution in Nairobi, I'd highly recommend checking out their website and best of all as Wangui said, just turning up to their Saturday meetings. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I'm also looking for someone who can spend a little bit of time each week working with me to directly grow uh, our social media presence. If that's you, share your interest in a message on Twitter, Instagram, or by email by the end of January. Yeah.